Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. Right now, I want to bring in Dr. Steve Miller, Chief Medical Officer and Senior Vice President at Express Scripts. It is one of the largest companies in the country. It is an American Fortune 100 company, uh, the 20th largest in the U.S., and it is the largest pharmacy benefit management organization in the United States. Uh, Dr. Miller, I want to start with drug pricing. We hear a lot about, you know, that the price is too high. Uh, do you think, do you agree? Do you think that the cost of drugs in the U.S. is too high? Let's start there. Yeah, Lisa, I definitely think they are. Uh, Americans are actually shouldering the burden for the rest of the world. So we're 4.6% of the world's population. We're 33% of world drug spend. We're somewhere between 50 and 70% of drug profits. So we truly are funding all innovation for the rest of the world. And they're actually freeloading on America. So what could be done to actually bring prices down? So, you know, we've worked very hard, and there's certain things that we can do every day uh, that, and that patients can actually do every day. So, for instance, if there's a generic available for a branded product, you should be taking the generics. The FDA approves them under the same process. They've been proven time and time again to be equally effective. But there's also things we got to do dramatically if we're going to continue that, and that is we got to make biosimilars available in this country. So biosimilars are generic versions of the complex drugs for cancer, rheumatoid arthritis, other diseases. American companies have been making these drugs for Europeans. They've been taking advantage of them for the last eight years. The discounts are somewhere between 60 and 75%, yet they're unavailable in the United States, and that makes no sense. Dr. Miller, you've been described as a cost-fighting ninja. You must, uh, there must be a target on you from all of the pharmaceutical companies because I want you to tell us about formularies and how you arrive at the, how do you go through the process of determining which drugs are covered and how much is paid because this is something that you're dealing with by looking at your own data, not relying on the data from, let's say, the drug companies or even from healthcare providers. Yeah, so a formulary is a list of drugs, and that list has to have any a drug to treat any patient with any disease that walks into a doctor. And so there's about 25,000 different products in the United States, but it turns out that doctors need about 4,200 of them. And so it allows us to pit drug company against drug company to get better deals. So the simplest example is there are six different statins, like Lipitor, Zocor, Crestor, other things. What you do is you say to the pharmaceutical manufacturers, I need a statin for my patients, but the data shows that you're all equivalent. Who will give us the best price? And so by pitting them together, we can actually drive market share and get lower prices. And so we have a process in which our formularies are designed by external experts to Express Scripts, no employees of Express Scripts. The only thing they can consider is clinical. They're not allowed to consider price. This way we can guarantee to our plans and our patients that we've always put clinical first, that we always have the right drugs available for them, but then we, un once we have their parameters, can drive to the lowest net cost. So, Dr. Miller, uh, 
how do you respond to, let's say, a pharmaceutical company that would say to you, by your doing this, you are reducing our R&D budget and you're sort of uh, inhibiting the production of, of new drugs? Yeah, so I will tell you that the typical response is, is that, you know, woe is we, uh, there's nothing in the pipeline. It turns out that because of American ingenuity, we have over 7,000 products in clinical testing in the United States right now, and that's the data according to the pharmaceutical manufacturers. When you look at FDA approvals, 2015 was almost a record. You have to go back 20 years to have that many drugs approved. So we actually have a very vigorous drug pipeline that's funded by the NIH, it's funded by the pharmaceutical manufacturers, it's funded by others, and so I'm not worried that us trying to drive to the lowest cost. This is still a $400 billion industry. Uh, there's plenty of profitability there for the drug companies to do R&D. The president has uh, publicly come out against uh, high drug prices. He's singled out various uh, pharmaceutical companies. What can the president do without Congress? Can he do anything in order to change uh, drug pricing? Yeah, so we there are things that require legislation, obviously, but there's a lot that can be done by regulations. So the FDA, CMS, all have really a lot of influence over drug pricing. So I'll give you a couple examples. Right now, we have a backlog of generic approvals at the FDA. The FDA could obviously do things to accelerate those approvals. Getting those generics out into the marketplace lowers drug prices. We have these situations where we have only one generic in the marketplace. They've been jacking up the price. You've seen this with situations like Daraprim. The FDA could actually prioritize a competitor to uh, Daraprim. So don't just accept the applications as they come in. But when there's a shortage in the marketplace, put that at the top priority list and get a competitor in faster. So there are plenty of regulatory things that can be done to bring down drug prices. Thank you very much for being with us. Uh, Dr. Steve Miller is the Chief Medical Officer, Senior Vice President, Express Scripts, joining us here at the National Medicare Advantage Summit taking place in Arlington, Virginia. It is hosted by Better Medicare Alliance. We are broadcasting from the National Medicare Advantage Summit taking place in Arlington, Virginia, right across the river, the Potomac from Washington, D.C. And here to tell us more about the healthcare system in the United States is Tom Scully. He is a general partner with Welsh, Carson, Anderson, and Stowe. He is also senior counsel at Alston and Bird. But perhaps more importantly for our conversation, he was the administrator of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services under President George W. Bush. H.W. Bush. Both. Yes. No, I work both. For both. Oh, both. Both. <laughs> both Bushes. Both We're both pushes. right. Bush, Bush one guy. and yeah, Bush yeah. one and Bush two. Um, and you also really played a, a very important role in helping to design Medicare Part D and Medicare Advantage. Both. Yeah. Right. Um, so where do where do you where do you start when you try to explain to people the current state? Because there's so many pieces to this, whether it's Medicare Advantage, whether it's supplemental, whether it's Medicare Medicaid. You say you're on the board of a Medicaid insurance program here in D.C. How do you tease all this out so that we can understand at least where we are and what are some of the options to move forward and make it better? Who would ever know that healthcare was so complicated? Oh. 
<laughs> well, well, maybe maybe the best <laughs> way to was that a dig on some of the recent you were you, okay, wait, wait, you were the admin, you were the administrator yeah. for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. So, yes. What does the CMS do? CMS is a giant agency in Baltimore, which most people in Washington they know it's in Baltimore, and it runs Medicare and Medicaid, and it also runs the exchanges, the Obamacare exchanges, uh, and uh, a yeah. number of other things. But it's um, so you probably have 77 million people, one out of four Americans roughly, in the Medicaid program, which is lower income, you know, uh, lower income health care for women and kids, covers 70 percent of the nursing homes in the country, covers most of the disabled, mentally retarded people in the country as far as uh, mentally disabled. Um, <clears throat> and Medicare is 44 million seniors and chronically disabled people. So they're giant programs. The combined budget for CMS with between all of Medicare, Medicaid, and other programs is about $1.4 trillion a year. So it basically runs about half the healthcare economy, and uh, a lot of it is on autopilot. So I would say 95% of the, you know, the, the seven or eight people who had the job in the last 20 years, Democrats and Republicans, were all friends. And most of the job is running giant insurance plans and making sure all these beneficiaries get taken care of. And at certain periods of time, like with Obamacare, or in my case with Part D and Medicare Advantage, they get very legislative, legislative intense times. You spend time changing the program. So when I came in with Bush in 2001, <clears throat> the agency was then called HICFA. I changed the name to CMS about a week after I got there. You didn't want to work for HICFA? No, you know what, HICFA. Right. <laughs> Carry on. <laughs> it's a long story. I used to run the for-profit hospital association for HCA and 10 and those guys back in the 90s, and I, I had a lot of friends at Hickville, but there was a perception, fair or unfair, that it was a big slum of bureaucracy. So I told my boss then at the time, Tommy Thompson, hey, let's change the name. And there's nothing in the statute, so we just sat around and made up a new name. Well, so you were talking about the $1.4 trillion budget for all of these uh, agencies, and you're saying it's on autopilot. Meanwhile, well, we're looking at budget projections that are saying that the cost is going to balloon as the population does age. Are there conversations that are being had that you're involved with with current legislators sure. for making feasible changes that would reduce costs over time? Uh, here's and the what biggest are they? one. The House bill, this is the biggest debate in the country the last you know, three months, is the Paul Ryan House bill that didn't pass. Right. So if you take Obamacare, I'm not trying to criticize President Obama, I think he was worthy effort to try to cover and have universal coverage. But what happened under uh, President Obama's health care plan is if you look at it, before it kicked in in 2012, you had 55 million people on the Medicaid program. Between then and today, it's gone from 55 million to 77 million, so 22 million people on Medicaid. If you kept it going for the next 10 years, you go to 97 million. Current spending on Medicaid right now is $600 billion a year. $600 billion a year, it's a big number already at Charles Rail. It will go from $600 billion to $950 billion over the next 10 years. But isn't that more of a commentary on sort of the fact that there are people who are falling into poverty or falling into a lower income bracket and no. need help? No, you're exp what President Obama did, I'm not trying to be good, pro or con, that bill expanded the poverty the coverage of Medicaid <clears throat> and mandated it was going to go to 138% of poverty in every state. The Supreme Court came out and said, you can't force the states to do that. So 31 northern, largely Democratic states took the 100% federal money and expanded their programs massively. And 19 largely southern, more conservative states said, we're not going to do it. We don't want to have these giant new entitlement programs. And so 19 of them skipped it. Okay. So the real issue is what the Republicans have done. I'm going to give it, these are big policy changes that affect have an enormous impact on every American in the economy. Republicans largely said we're going to freeze it where it is. So spending in Medicaid under what Paul Ryan wanted to do would go from $600 billion 
this year to about 750 billion in 10 years. If you left it on the cruise control from Obamacare, it would go from 600 billion to 900 billion. The Republicans would freeze it where it is at about 77 million people. Those are big policy issues. Do you want to cover all those new people in those other states? Do you want to, you know, those are, you're talking about another 20 million people in the Medicaid problem. Is that good or bad? Those are big, fundamental, gigantic economic issues. So I happen to love the Medicaid program, but every person, lets, every person who's paying taxes out there listening to this pays $4,000 per year. You're not on Medicaid. That is your tax contribution to pay for Medicaid every year is $4,000 per taxpayer. And you want to all make a decision. Do you want to cover all those people and have universal coverage? I think it's the right thing to do. The Medicaid program is a mess. I could, I could spend hours explaining to you how screwed up it is structurally. Uh, but it's a wonderful program. I happen to be a fan of universal coverage. But how much do you want to spend where? These are the single biggest issues in the government. Medicare and Medicaid are the biggest programs in the government outside of Social Security. And they drive all your taxpayer spending. And these policy issues about who you want to cover where and who deserves subsidies and who should get subsidies are massive and they're important to people and i know they're incredibly complicated who would know healthcare is so complicated but they are the budget and they are the government's this is the future of government policy is there a model or is there another country that is doing something that we can learn from if you were given a clean i mean you're not going to ever get a clean slate there is no clean slate but if you were to be given you know half a clean slate what would you do what would you say you can't and i've been doing this forever and i think things change incrementally and i look i I was not a big fan of obamacare structurally i think he's trying to do the right thing if you look at president obama's package and i've said this publicly a lot it looks a hell of a lot like the george hw bush plan that i helped design in 1990 with a lot more money so what they were trying to do with the universal coverage was worthy and a, ra- and a rational goal. I think they ever did it, went too far, and, 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 and put too much on the structure. But they were trying to do the right thing. And I think when you look at what the Republicans are trying to do, they're basically trying to scale back what President Obama did. So whatever happens, the programs are going to get bigger. It's a matter of how much bigger. And even on the Republican bills, Medicare and Medicaid are going to grow dramatically. The issue is, are they going to grow really fast or less fast? So you can't really change it. Do the Dutch have a pretty good system? Yes. The Germans, I think, have a pretty good system. They have kind of neighborhood-based systems. But you'd have to go back to 1920 and blow the whole thing up and start from scratch. We have an incredibly complicated web of multiple programs to cover people. And you, you really have no choice but to build on it. Tom Scully, thank you so much for joining us. Truly uh, fascinating to hear your thoughts. Tom Scully uh, was the head of CMS under both President uh, no, George no, I, Bush. I was in the White House for Bush one. Okay, you were in the White House for policy, yeah. but you've been making healthcare policy, yeah. and you did uh, Medicare Part D, and yeah. you also did Medicare uh, Advantage. And we really appreciate you being with, uh, and with he us. Looks Tom very Scully. Healthy. He yeah. looks incredibly healthy. Yeah, I no. feel like about ninety-seven, but that's good. <laughs> Tom Scully, General <laughs> Partner at Wells Carson Anderson and Stowe, also Senior Counsel at Alston and Bird LLP. We are here broadcasting live at the National Medicare Advantage Summit in Arlington, Virginia. It is hosted by the Better Medicare Alliance. This is Bloomberg. We are live at the National Medicare Advantage Summit in Arlington, Virginia, and we are so lucky to have Dr. Kavita Patel uh, here with us. She is a non-resident senior fellow at Brookings Institute and a former advisor to the Obama White House. She worked on the Affordable Care Act. Uh, So, uh, Dr. Patel, you really have a a clear insight into what's going on right now. What should we pay attention to? What's the most realistic change that could happen in short order to the uh, 
uh, ACA, Affordable Care Act. So I still think the most realistic change is going to be no change, that we're not going to see a repeal or something that kind of completely rips out the Affordable Care Act. There's still a lot of discussions going on, but the bottom line is the votes are not there right now. Dr. Patel, maybe you could just describe to people how Medicare Advantage works in the healthcare system and how this partnership between the public system, which is, of course, Medicare, uh, and private insurance, how does that come together and how does they, how do that present a challenge? Because most people look at this situation, they go, boy, it can't get any more complicated. Right, right. So the Medicare Advantage program really started as a way to expand kind of what we would call private sector choices in insurance for Medicare beneficiaries. And that was actually done during a Republican administration previously, the actual George H.W. Bush administration. And that failed a little bit in its first attempt. And then there was a little bit of a reboot in the in the George W. Bush administration, where we then got what we have today, which is the Medicare Advantage program. And basically, 30% of people in Medicare are in private plans, which are Medicare Advantage plans, which are basically confusing because, and if you have a family member like I do, they just get a bunch of brochures like around October and they have all these choices and that's what you're referencing. But where we've gotten now is actually in about five years, more than half of the Medicare beneficiaries are going to be in these Medicare Advantage or private commercial insurance plans in Medicare than the traditional fee-for-service program. And we got about, what, 55 million people currently in Medicare, Correct, about 55 to 60 million in the Medicare program. That number is going to grow in the next five years, but then half of the people in this program, in Medicare, will be in the Medicare Advantage program. How does Medicare Advantage and, and partnering private health insurance companies with public ones reduce costs? So the way it reduces cost is is basically by what, what the government does is it actually pays the private insurance plan kind of a lump sum amount to take care of basically everything. Right now, traditional Medicare, there's hospital costs, physician costs, drug costs, and it's all paid out of separate pockets and pieces of the government pie. Medicare Advantage, the government pays one lump sum to the private plan and says, you take care of everything, no matter how much it costs. And if someone doesn't necessarily need all that money, then the plan keeps that extra money. And what the plans will do in a way to save money is they will do really aggressive things like send a nurse out to a patient's home to do an in-home assessment and not ever have to even see the doctor to establish kind of what that patient needs, all in an attempt to create a more efficient system. Okay, so talking about private health insurers brings me back to ACA and the path forward. The latest plan that was unveiled today by an Alabama Republican congressman shows that there is an attempt to try to pull out high-risk pools or sort of uh, group people by how risky they are and their pre-existing conditions. Can you speak to that and how effective that could be? Yeah, so 
you remember the criticism of the American Health Care Act is that potentially the older or sicker you are, you're going to have to pay potentially a thousand percent more than you would today under the Affordable Care Act. So what's being introduced now is ways to actually deal with sicker patients who are older and to try to acknowledge that they need something different than just regular old Medicare insurance. So what you're seeing proposed, um, not just for Medicare, but for actually any age, are these high-risk pools that take people out based on the numbers of kind of, you know, numbers of diseases that they have or how sick they are based on how much money they're using in the system or potentially pre-existing conditions. And then charge them more? And then, well, it, one, charges them more, but then it also puts them in a different pool, almost like Medicare Advantage, where it's a private insurance system that then has to take care of them for a dedicated amount of money. But I don't understand how this works, why any insurance company would agree to take them on. So it's, yes, that's a good question. Will anyone actually take on the sickest people in a population? If you pay enough money, somebody will. (laughs) Right, but who's going to put that bill? Who's going to put the government is? So at the end of the day, uh, you have mentioned I obviously am a fan of the Affordable Care Act, even with its warts and flaws. At the end of the day, Somebody has to foot the bill. We can't skirt or get around the fact that as a society, we have to pay for health care as a society, including people who are really sick and including people who are super healthy. And that's the bottom line. I want your thoughts on prescription drug prices and the insurance plans around those, because mm-hmm. the president has the president, Donald Trump, has come out via tweets, via uh, mm-hmm. verbal uh, uh, you know, rhetoric. He's saying drug prices are too high. Correct. So the emphasis on drug pricing is very interesting for a Republican administration. And it's largely, as you mentioned, because of President Trump's quotes, translating that into something that'll change the way all of us receive our prescription drugs is very hard to do. However, that's something if you listen to all the people who work under President Trump, they've said that this is one of the top priorities for the White House. The way prescription drug plans work right now, most of us in America don't even realize it. It's a third party that deals with the way your drugs are paid for. And those are called prescription benefit plans. And so there's a whole different entity and industry outside of your insurance card that actually deals with all of this. And that's why it's complicated. And I am not likely to see a change happen soon. Well, I want to thank you for helping us understand it at least a little bit. Dr. Kavita Patel, non-resident senior fellow, Brookings Institution. We are broadcasting at the National Medicare Advantage Summit taking place in Arlington, Virginia. It is hosted by Better Medicare Alliance. And uh, to turn our attention now to politics and America's uh, relationship with China, I want to bring in Brendan Ahern. He is the chief investment officer of Crane Shares. And uh, Brendan, of course, we're all uh, wondering about the Chinese President Xi Jinping's visit to China. President Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago Club in Florida. Uh, What do you think the most pressing topic their meeting will be? It's going to be North Korea, Pam. Uh, It's an area of mutual interest and an area where there's potential, a lot of potential collaboration and coming up with a solution that uh, is certainly a factor for both countries. Well, uh, so North Korea is definitely even more on people's minds just because of the recent uh, missile tests. 
But don't both sides have a reason to not say anything? I mean, it's the best case scenario that neither of them say anything and they make nice and then they have a nice photo op with each other. I, I agree, Elisa. I think ultimately you want to get the dialogue going between um, you know the first and second largest uh, world economies, leaders talking with one another, and hopefully that sets a path for more communication um, in the years to come. You know, uh, Brendan, one of the issues has been uh, Chinese acquisitions of what are considered to be essential assets. Mm -hmm. Uh, For example, Chinese companies' attempts to purchase uh, oil companies in the United States. That was thwarted. Do you think that there is going to be talk about the Westinghouse Toshiba unit uh, that is uh, up for sale, that uh, is facing uh, financial problems? Good question. I I believe the... This is an opportunity for President Xi to show Trump and and really the United States in general about how much business China is doing here in the U.S. Last year, three million tourists, 300,000 Chinese students studying. China is the second larger buyer of agricultural products. And there's U.S. companies doing well in China. I think this gives China the opportunity to show how they can be a good business partner. And, yes, there are sensitive sectors, you know, technology uh, being one of them. Nuclear energy. Well, this is what we're talking about with Westinghouse, nuclear energy. Well, and and China has a uh, a pollution issue. Um, Nuclear is going to be, is currently one of those solutions, along with hydro, wind, and solar. Bringing Westinghouse technology to China, they're going to build, you know, it's upwards of two dozen nuclear plants in the years to come. And why wouldn't that be a good thing for Westinghouse to have uh, Chinese ownership, either partial or full? Uh, Brennan, I imagine that one thing that will be brought up is the trade deficit that the U.S. has with China. President Trump has talked extensively about it. He has lamented how big it is, even though it has contracted over the years. What do you expect to come out of uh, this particular meeting with respect to the trade deficit? I, th- I think it sets a this dialogue and communication going forward. I believe that you have a little bit of a, uh, a team of rivalries within the Trump administration, where you've got, uh, say, Jared Kushner, Gary Cohn, Mnuchin, and Malpass on one side, uh, more of, say, the globalists, you know, trade proponents. And on the other side, you have a Steve Bannon, Wilbur Ross, Peter Navarro. And so I, I believe you have a little bit of Uh, the administration finding its way between these two camps that have divergent views. Well, hold on a second. It's really interesting that you mentioned that because Steve Bannon, as you know, was just removed from the National Security Council. Do you think that that's going to affect the conversation that President Trump has with uh, President Xi Jinping uh, and possibly ease the negotiations over some kind of trade contract? I I think behind the scenes, the the hand, the invisible hand of Henry Kissinger is at play. Uh, He visited China in December to help arrange this meeting. He's been meeting with the administration to help them prep for this meeting. And and so certainly I think you're going to see a more balanced view potentially I mean, time's going to tell um, in, in this course of dialogue. Now, Brendan, uh, Crane Shares uh, has uh, a variety of exchange-traded funds uh, designed for uh, Chinese investments. Is the uh, Chinese yuan, is it currently, in your mind, overvalued or undervalued versus the U.S. dollar? That's a good question, Pim. I mean, I think ultimately interest rate differentials help drive currencies. China has slowly, slightly started to tighten, not the official interest rates. So, so I don't think China meets the Treasury Department's uh, definition of a currency manipulator. Uh, but I think if we were in euro, yen or pound, you might say it's undervalued. 
Yeah, this is going to be something uh, that that could come up because President Trump has said that uh, that China is manipulating its currency. And yet, you know, you do wonder if there was some kind of removal of some kind of state control, the direction probably would be down, not up. Right. It, it probably would depreciate beginning in uh, 2015. China cut the official interest rates. 2016, the Fed moves to a tightening bias. The, the uh, yuan depreciates versus the dollar. China's slowly starting to tighten up a little bit in advance of a big political turnover at the end of this year. This is the year of stability for China economically in advance of uh, the political and leadership changes coming. Uh, Brendan, before we you know, sort of look at China as a monolithic uh, entity, is it worth noting that they have their own problems, uh, such as bad loans? And is it possible that uh, we are underestimating the issues that face the Chinese leadership? It's not just all about the United States. Oh, I, I agree. There's a domestic agenda that's been set. You know, uh, you know, if you, one looks at the 13th five-year plan, the um, Chinese government is very explicit in where they want to drive not only their economy but their society. And there, there are liabilities on the balance sheet. At the same time, there's assets. And I, I think you bring up a great point. China is a big country, just not geographically, but the economy. And parts of China is doing very well right now, domestic consumption. Parts of China geared to more traditional um, steel, aluminum, coal, you know, a little bit of a, of, of a tougher road. So you've got this barbelled economy right now. So for President Xi Jinping, it's an election year. He wants to send a message to his constituents back home. What's the best case scenario that could emerge from this meeting for that purpose? I think ultimately this is a sign of respect, of face, and that that Trump is willing to meet with Xi at this stage of of his new presidency is is a victory in in and of itself. So oh, that's interesting. I, I think it's a it's a good sign and it shows something that's so important to China, which is respect. Yeah, and so what about for President Trump? I, I think ultimately Trump, you know, Trump is going to one. He he was elected with a set uh, agenda from his, the people who voted for him, and and he wants to satisfy those voters. At the same time, uh, the U.S. is a global leader economically, and I think upsetting uh, what what will be an increasingly better mutually beneficial relationship economically. Um, it. it especially around an area like North Korea where China can help. Right. Brendan Ahern, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this will be something that we, I'm sure, will talk to you again about soon. Brendan Ahern is Chief Investment Officer at Crane Shares in New York City, talking about President Trump's meeting with President Xi Jinping of China. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.